0: Let us pray. Loving God, open our hearts and our minds and our souls today. Help us to think what it means to be a good king. Amen. Please be seated. I know here at the Church of the Transfiguration we have visitors every week from all over the country and maybe the world, so Everybody's probably not an Episcopalian. I'll be starting understanding that. But if you are an Episcopalian, or if you're a Methodist, or a Presbyterian, or Disciples of Christ, or a Church of Christ, or a Lutheran, or a Roman Catholic, or a Greek Orthodox, uh, these last few months, if you've been going to church every Sunday, and I'm sure everyone's been going to church every Sunday, you've been listening to the story of King David, read from the Hebrew Bible. Sunday by Sunday. We've met David as the youngest son in a family of shepherds. We've seen him anointed by Samuel, destined to be the once and future king of Israel. We've watched him slay the giant Goliath and single-handedly win a war for his country. David has cried over the death of Saul, the king who both loved and hated him. And he's cried over his friend, Jonathan, whom he loved with the love that was wonderful we're told that it surpassed the love of a woman. Following the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan, we listened as first the tribe of Judah, and then all the tribes of Israel proclaimed David as king. And last week, in last week's lesson, we sensed with David that he was at the height of his power. Now secure on his throne in Jerusalem, David was prepared to build God a house. But wait just a minute, God told David, through the prophet Nathan, have I asked you to build me a house? Instead, God says, I will build you a house. God goes on to say, after you are dead and buried, I will raise up your child after you, and I will establish his kingdom, and I will establish his throne forever. David was not only at the pinnacle of his power over the united kingdom, He was also assured one last time by God of his place as a man after God's own heart. It doesn't get much better than this. It's just like Mel Brooks said in the movie, it's good to be the king. (laughs) Well, if the last few weeks were an indication of the good life that David was enjoying as king? This week, the motto might be, how low can you go? How low can you go? The colic for purity that was prayed at the beginning of each Eucharist, and we said it today, seems tailor-made for today's episode. The saga of David and poor old Uriah and sad Bathsheba. Uriah, whose heart was so open that he didn't see it coming. And David the desires and secrets of his heart, all to become far too public in the months and the years to come. Well, what about Bathsheba? Sadly, like all too many women in the biblical narrative, she's almost a bit player. She's referred to by her name only one time in the story. Otherwise, she's simply the woman, or of course, the wife of Uriah. She has no identity on her own. Walter Brueggemann is a great Old Testament scholar in this generation and he names this story the pivotal turning point in the narrative plot of the prophet Samuel. He says it's delicate and it's subtle and that this text still has the power to address us. If we face this text at all Brueggemann says And most preachers probably would not choose this text to preach on on a Sunday morning, I'll grant you that. But here we all are together. If if we face this text at all, we are soon invited, beyond all the critical scholarly questions, to face the harder questions, the harder questions of human desire and human power. Desire with all its delight and power with all of its potential for death. Desire with all its delight and power with all its potential for death. So let there be no doubt that it is desire and power that this story is about. The translation, translation that we read in church every Sunday, the Hebrew Bible, said that David sent messengers to get her. That's really a much too neat and proper spin on what the Hebrew says. In Hebrew, it reads that David took her. It's the same word that, that's used to describe David's action when he takes the cities and when he kills people, when he exercises his power. David took her. He didn't send someone to go get her. David sent, he took, and he laid with her. All verbs of action based on his desire and based on his power. Bathsheba also has three verbs of action more like verbs of reaction she came to the palace she returned home and she discovered that she was pregnant this is not a romantic love story as it is so often portrayed by Hollywood the typical Hollywood treatment is to present a picture of Bathsheba as a seductress if you've only seen Gregory Peck as King David or Richard Gere, maybe, as King David. If you think of Susan Hayward when you think of Bathsheba, that's all Hollywood tells us. But that's the wrong image. This is not a story for a movie on the Hallmark Channel. It's more of a plot for the Lifetime Channel with all the lust and the betrayal and the treachery and the death that accompanies movies on Lifetime. This is no love story. We've heard how David went to extraordinary lengths to set the stage for Uriah to be known as the father of Bathsheba's child. The last thing that David wanted was another wife, he already had a bunch, or another child, he already had a bunch, to claim the throne. Having just been promised by God that his child would establish a throne and that God would preserve it forever, the next thing David (coughs) does is beget a child by rape. And somehow, now, he's got to fix it. And so hard as it is to believe, this story goes from bad to worse. Recalling Uriah from the battlefield, David engages in a conversation that is full of deceit and double talk. He asks about his friend, General Joab. He asks for an update on the army. And then David encourages Uriah to go home, to go down to his house, and to wash his feet. Now this is a strange turn of phrase, to go wash your feet. It's another way we deliberately mistranslate the Hebrew Bible. When you wash your feet in the Hebrew Bible, when you lay at someone's feet in the Hebrew Bible, you're being sexually intimate. Almost every story you find. You know the story of uh, Ruth and her mother-in-law. When Ruth has spied Boaz in the field, think that's a good future husband for her. Boaz comes in from the field. Mother-in-law says, well, Ruth, there's Boaz. He just went home. Go down to see Boaz tonight and lay at his feet. Lay at his feet. And the next thing we know, Ruth is pregnant. So when you, in the Hebrew Bible, when they talk about feet, just know it's a code word <laughs> for sexual intimacy. So David was encouraging Uriah to go home and be sexually intimate with Bathsheba so that the story could be told that the baby was his. But sadly for David, and worse for Uriah, Uriah is both loyal and he's pious. He says the Ark of the Covenant is in the field of battle. His general Joab and his mates are out fighting a war. And there's no way that good old faithful Uriah is going to take it easy by going home and taking a chance to wash his feet. So the next day, when David found out that this trick didn't work, his next ploy was to keep Uriah in Jerusalem one more night, get him drunk, and then send him home again. Maybe it'll work the second time. And that didn't work either. So here we are back to the question: How low can David go? So writing a death sentence, David gives a letter to simple open, trusting Uriah sends him back to that battle, sends him back to die. It makes you wonder why the compilers, the Hebrew Bible, retained this story. And when I was reading the scriptures for this week, it made me wonder why the people who picked the three scriptures for a Sunday picked this story. But there it was in front of us. So I think these stories are retained in Scripture because they are always new. They always have a lesson for each generation as we come and go. And we're about 3,000 years into this story. But it's always new. Now I think it's a little too easy if we draw an analogy from the daily news to presidents or corporate leaders or politicians or even bishops and priests and preachers. And see them mess up in their lives. And then say, ah, there goes the story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba again. But we don't have these stories in the Bible just so that we can point to them when someone rich or powerful falls from grace. We have these stories in the Bible because in them there's a story for us. It isn't only ancient Hebrew kings or presidents that can let their desire overrule their hearts and their minds. It's a story that each of us need to be sensitive to every day. Whether we choose prestige or wealth to risk, whether we choose alcohol or drugs or sex to risk, we're all at risk to let the desires of our hearts overrule the good story that we have in the saving life that we're given through jesus christ god we believe in spite of david we know that god was faithful david's son is on a throne that lasts forever we believe because we believe that's jesus christ david invited uriah to a feast to get him drunk and to preserve david's reputation God invites us to a feast here to give us the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation. Whether God's feeding 5,000 people on a grassy hillside or feeding us one at a time at this altar rail, we know that God is faithful. Above all all else, we know that God is faithful. Amen. Amen.